location, location, location. Who's your market? Who's coming into that space? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. Today, as I always say, I have a really interesting topic, but this is actually true based on the fact that I'm thinking about it to talk about real estate in the life sciences and healthcare sector. And it took a year and it wasn't actually me, it was my guest who approached me and asked me <laughs> if I would be interesting to pick something up that he really would like to talk about it. And I was super thankful because, again, I had it on the back of my head for a long time. Without further ado, Graham Cutts, welcome to Talking the Cure. Thank you for taking the time. Before we dive in, could you please introduce yourself really quick? Sure. Thank you, firstly, for having me, Julius. Pleasure to be here. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So I'm Graham Cutts. I'm one of the UK real estate partners here at Hogan Lovells. I have a pretty broad practice base, but with a very specialist focus on life sciences, which over the last two to three years has been catapulted into the spotlight as a result of the global pandemic. But my, my history with life sciences um, goes back some time. So we as a firm, and I was involved in this transaction, were heavily involved in the establishment of the UK Harwell Science and Innovation Campus. So there we acted for the UK Atomic Energy Authority in setting up a huge life science campus, which is now the centre of a huge amount of scientific research, collaboration between cluster tenants and environments, which uh, was a real pleasure to be part of and I really enjoyed. On the Occupy side, I've acted for Eli Lilly, so one of the big pharma pharmaceutical companies that many people listening to this will have heard of. But I think the real passion for me in terms of the focus on life science is that as a result of the pandemic, the public mood has really shifted towards making the country we live in a better place. And actually, the support that the government has now offered life sciences, there's a billion pounds worth of funding which is on offer. I want to do something meaningful to propel the UK forwards in that initiative to be a global leader in life sciences work. Uh, and unlike most other asset classes, it's pretty tricky for life science occupiers to work from home. So the post-pandemic shift here means that real estate is going to be a key part of that trajectory for life sciences going forward. Obviously, real estate in regards of life sciences and healthcare is such a huge field that in our kickoff conversation, we narrowed it down. And I think one of the most interesting tracks right now is the topic offices to labs, repurposing existing real estate. The first question we have to discuss is when you are planning to repurpose a building or office space into lab space, is there a need of a planning permission? What steps do you have to take before even thinking about moving in? The question of repurposing is going to feature fairly strongly, I think, in a lot of the stuff that we talk about today, because it is the buzzword or buzz phrase in the real estate market globally at the minute. The planning framework, just taking one step back, looking at sort of the macro planning environment here in the UK, there's been a pretty seismic shift recently in the UK with the way in which planning policy and legislation is set up. And I think the first comment I would make is that I think the UK 
planning framework and the local authorities that are responsible for delivering it and administering it can play a massive part in supporting the growth of the UK life science sector. But it's going to take some pretty sensible policy application of the relevant authorities, expertise within their ranks, and some serious thought about how that planning policy is applied. So looking at the micro environment in terms of buildings, and this is urban centres here we're talking about, as opposed to kind of the out of town greenfield new campuses. This is repurposing existing stock within city centres or town centres. The existing UK planning framework is certainly helpful to support growth, particularly through repurposing. And there's a main reason why. The shift in living and working patterns as a result of the pandemic has contributed to a downturn of, particularly in the context of urban retail and office space, a grouping in planning terms of a new use class. And that new use class is use class E, which groups together what previously were office, lab, light industrial under one class, the same class, crucially, as things like retail and cafes. Therefore, planning permission is not required for a switch between uses, provided that the use you're striving for is within that now wider bracket. So there's a help there from the planning framework to allow the repurposing model to work. The planning framework supports it. But as with any reconfiguration, an owner needs to think more carefully, more specifically about the end user, because it's all very well just to say that you don't need planning permission to convert an office or retail space to a lab. There are other considerations as well. And we'll get on to this as we talk about building configuration, how things are set up. Traditionally, Retail units, for example, have very, very good floor to ceiling heights, which is crucial for lab space, whether it's wet or dry. Um, again, we'll talk about the distinction between wet or dry slightly later on, I think. Large ventilation capacities, because they were traditionally used for things like deliveries. Okay, So the retail space is ideally set up for conversion from the off. Office buildings are, on the whole, slightly less conducive to immediate conversion without significant spend on the building's infrastructure and its fabric to kind of get it up to standard really but i mean that that's that's sort of the theory the planning framework is there there is a new use class which supports conversion between existing buildings in a way that will help and propel growth but it will require local authorities to think carefully about what the end user is going to be when it's issuing any direction as to how that planning policy can be implemented. So for example, what are these buildings actually going to be used for? If we're talking about a wet lab, will there be contaminative substances used? Will there be hazardous substances used? So the planning authority are going to want to be very interested in whether or not there is a risk of substance processing that could be hazardous to the surrounding community. Will there be loud machinery? Will there be leveling up? Will the occupier need to be showing that it's recruiting staff from the local community to make a wider contribution in planning terms to that particular use? So I think in summary, it can be done, but developers, landowners, investors need to think sensitively and carefully about how they approach the local authorities to allow them to do so, because there may be slightly more than meets the eye when it comes to actually what the end user of that building is, is going to be. So for my basic understanding here is the permission class is the same when it comes down to retail or lab space, for example, but the owner as well as the potential tenant before they reach out to authorities has to come up with a full concept 
ideally already talk to an advisor who is involved in this kind of projects in advance. Yeah, exactly. I think getting the right advisor on board is is key here. And there are certainly a few specialist life sciences agencies here in the UK and elsewhere that will give you that early input that you need. But the question that we looked at was around the planning framework and whether or not there is a framework in place to allow this to happen. And there, there definitely is. I guess what I'm saying is that the the end product isn't always quite as straightforward as that. And building owners, landowners are going to find that they're getting a lot more interest from local authorities when they're creating clusters, when they're creating wet lab buildings that are using, you know, bio contaminant level substances throughout the building because they're going to be very interested into how they're discharged. There may be things that sit on the title of some of these buildings as to how these buildings can be used. Restrictive covenants, for example, about loud machinery and things. So dry labs, for example, which deal with computer engineering and basically hard harvesting of data, they're extremely power hungry. Now, power hungry premises clearly require a huge amount of machinery, right? And that can be that can be pretty loud. So you've got noise restriction zones and things to think about. So I think they've just got to be planned carefully and delivered, particularly when they're being delivered in quite a tight-knit urban environment. Out in the sticks and in the countryside, that's slightly different. But I think in that urban cluster, careful planning is required from the outset. But obviously, it's not all about the planning permission. That is just the first step. And you already mentioned it in your first answer bit. Building reconfiguration, everything doesn't fit all. So, and my immediate thought when we came up with the topic is venting systems, for example. What will need to be done to make the building fit for this specific purpose? This is a really difficult question. It's, it's difficult for a number of reasons. I think the first thing we probably need to think about is, as we alluded to in the question relating to repurposing and building conversion, is what the end user is going to be. Now, the life science occupier falls into a myriad of different categories, but the broad rule of thumb, I think probably for the purposes of this podcast, is to split life science occupiers down into two camps. And I'm going to do that by reference to wet use, wet lab use, and dry lab use. So just to sort of jargon bust a little bit, or at least try to, so wet labs predominantly revolve around the use of contaminative, hazardous, or even contagious substances that are characterized by reference to biocontainment levels. So this is set by, in the UK, the Health and Safety Executive. So just to give you an example, there are three different biosafety levels. So biosafety level one, no containment required, non-pathogenic materials, things like E. coli, stuff like that. Biocontainment level two, there's some containment required. So in other words, we're moving to a moderate risk of containment where life science occupiers need to be a little bit more careful about how they're treating the substances that they're processing and they're using. So these would be things like HIV, COVID-19, actually, uh, which I wanted to highlight for the purposes of this podcast, because actually that's pretty relevant to what the world is reacting to when we're making space available for. And these sorts of wet lab uses pose a moderate infection and environmental contamination risk. Then you've got biocontainment level three. This is a high containment, highly infectious, potentially lethal use of materials, things like testing for tuberculosis and stuff like that. These are high airborne transition risk, and often you're looking at labs that will have sophisticated autoclave or air steam systems where employees and people working in the laboratories, and these are all in overalls and kits and everything anyway, but this is kind of one level up from that. There is a fourth biocontainment level, but you tend to find those only in out-of-town scenarios where there is a, a lower population density for obvious reasons surrounding it. And that's like extremely high-risk, contagious stuff that they're handling. More common in urban environments, and per really for the purposes of repurposing, 
is biocontainment level two. In terms of what's needed to a building to accommodate a wet lab, I mean, gosh, we could talk about this all day. There's a huge amount to say, but firstly, you're going to need to look at what the building can ventilate. How is the ventilation system set up? And the broad rule of thumb is that ventilation needs to allow a minimum of six air changes per hour. You're going to need to look at how waste is disposed of, because if these occupiers are using contaminative substances, there needs to be a transparent and robust means of getting that material out into a safe environment and disposed of offsite. It isn't just a case of flushing it down the toilet. It's not a case of just pouring it down the sink. You, this is binary stuff, right? But actually, these are things that when you set your building up, you've got to make sure that these systems are in place. Fume cupboards, local exhaust ventilation. So that might require, for example, some ducting going on the exterior of your building. That may in itself require planning permission. So you may be in a world where if you're reconfiguring your building to put external alterations to it to accommodate what's going inside, that would need planning permission. So that's something else to think about. What about deliveries? So traditionally, office or retail use, the deliveries would be pretty straightforward. They're just delivering the goods, they're delivering supplies to the office floors, whatever it might be. Here, you've got a very different mode of delivery. They're delivering high-risk materials or certainly higher-risk materials than traditional use. Are the turning circles big enough? Do you have a yard big enough for these, these lorries to access and vans to, to move around? Is your on-site management team up to scratch? So traditionally, when you've got a multi-tenanted building, you will have a management team acting on behalf of the investor or the owner running this premises. If, for example, you've got a wet lab shared facility across seven or eight floors, you might offer a shared facility because you've got similar occupiers in who are doing similar things. If you've got a shared facility, that's probably going to be put through a service charge where each of the tenants contribute towards the cost of the maintenance and running of that operation. But that comes with the risk that your team, your on-site team, may not be skilled to deal with that sort of management. So there's a there's sort of an upskilling question. If you're thinking of repurposing your building, do I have the skills within my team to accommodate the use and share of use and share of facilities that are going to be going into the building? Dry labs are kind of more straightforward. They tend to be more reliant on power, power efficiency, and really, really key is the proximity to backup power. So we're talking things like kind of computer engineering, data harvesting, research and development using the numbers. The amount of capex from a owner's perspective to ensure that these buildings or these environments in which dry lab users will inhabit can be significant, particularly in terms of power provision, because normally buildings set up for office and retail use have I would say, on average, a, a low to moderate power requirement. These life science occupiers, particularly in the dry lab space, have a huge power requirement. And that has some knock-on questions. Is your on-site power enough? Do you need to set up a data center? Who owns that data center? Do you incorporate a third party to do that? Do you keep control of it? How do you do it as a landlord? Do you need to install sub-meters if you've got a varied use within the building? Do you need to try and monitor how some of these things are used. Communication systems, your building management system, how it's set up to accommodate different electronic uses and feeding into those systems. And will your local power network allow all of this? Because it's all very well building a building, reconverting a building or repurposing a building to accommodate more power. But if the surrounding power network won't allow you to draw more power, you can be stuffed. 
So there's a lot to consider when you're setting up a life science building for use, but there are a huge number of very specialist agencies that if you are as an investor, as an owner, as an occupier, thinking of getting into this, uh, less so the occupiers, more investors and owners, thinking of getting into this asset class, then it's certainly wise to engage a specialist as early in the process as possible to guide you through the process and how you set things up. Yeah, my immediate thought now after your answer is that there is a need of additional investment that you have to take before you are able to rent out the spaces. You're absolutely right. From from an owner and an investor's perspective, the more money you're spending up front, if you know what you're doing, you want to work out how you're going to get that money back are the materials, are the raw materials that you're putting into that building capable of testing, uh, standing the test of time? Will tenants be able to put their fit out in these buildings over the top of the basic infrastructure? Will that be reused? Will I have to spend again at the end of the time of the lease of the occupier? There's there's lots of questions really, and particularly at the stage where, as you say, you're thinking of repurposing an existing building. Before you get into any of the numbers, you definitely need to impose a requirement on your decision making to get a specialist involved really early on. Yeah. When we switch sides and take a look on the occupier profiles, what can you as an owner expect sure. from a life sciences tenant? Yeah, I mean there's a, as we've said already, there's a there's a really wide range of life science occupiers that it, that inhabit what is quite a simple phrase, but there are a huge number of profiles of occupier that that sit underneath. And that sort of umbrella term is easily distinguished in terms of wet and dry lab use, as we've already been through. And there are a number of other subsectors within each of those distinctions that we could talk about and maybe do another session on, to be perfectly honest. But irrespective sort of what the end user is, there's another distinction that you can draw and profile within the life science occupier market. And that is where the life science company is in its relative stage of development as a business. So broadly, life science occupiers fall into two categories, your early stage or startup occupiers and your mid-stage or your scale-up occupiers. So taking the early stage startups to start with, they will lack a lot of capital at that stage of their life. They're in the kind of embryonic stage of research. They will be looking to take a lease from a building owner or, or an investor of between three to five years maximum, I'd say, with break rights. They will want minimal capex exposure. So they want to spend as little money as possible up front fitting that building out. And therefore, they are in the market to take ready fitted labs, right? This is kind of your, to draw an analogy, your IKEA setup building, which is ready to go into which they can plug. That's that's the easiest way to look at it. And they want very little, if any, exposure to dilapidations at the end of their lease term. They want to be able to just hand the keys back and walk away, which presents obvious issues for landlords. They want to usually take quite an incubator approach. So they would probably want to be near or proximate to other early stage life science uh, tenants with whom they can collaborate. So collaboration is kind of the DNA, which kind of threads a lot of these early stage research and development companies together. And that's fine generally from a landlord's perspective, but of course, you've got to be able to create the environment to allow that. And within the terms of each of the leases that these early stage occupiers 
will sit under, you're probably going to be asked by the occupier to come up with a slightly more relaxed attitude towards how the space can be shared. So traditionally speaking, owners and investors will restrict an occupier's ability to space share with companies that are just affiliated with it, right? So just group companies, you can share with a group company. When that relationship comes to an end, that's it. They've got to go. Life science occupiers will look at categorizing who they can share space with according to who they're collaborating with. So you may, as an occup- as a landlord or as an owner and investor, see your life science occupiers at the early stage of their life cycle wanting to space share with a significant number of people, which of course creates its own risk for landlords in terms of the profile of who's coming into the building. By contrast, mid-scale or as they're called scale-up companies who are slightly further down the track in terms of research and development and probably have launched in the commercialization phase, so they're out into the world maybe selling their products and developing more, they tend to be slightly happier with longer-term commitments, so larger upfront capex spend in fit-out terms because, of course, that can then be amortized over the course of a longer lease for accounting purposes. Typically, term of lease is probably between 10 to 15 at a push, maybe 15 to 20 years. So slightly more income security from an owner and a landlord's perspective. Obviously, they're going to want at that stage close proximity as much as possible. And actually, this probably occupies as well to academia and established institutions to get the benefit of that talent pool. The mid-scale occupier will probably want uh, contractual or statutory renewal rights. So here in the UK, we have a system where either you can solidify in your lease in your contract to write to renew that lease at the end of the term or we have a piece of legislation called the landlord and tenant act 1954 which imposes an obligation a statutory obligation on the landlord to offer the tenant a renewal of that lease and it can secure a renewal of that lease on terms set out in statute there is greater significance i would say at this end of the market placed on data loss as well so by that i mean because they're through the research stage into commercialization, the IP value around the information they've harvested is a lot higher. And the data then starts to take on some inherent value. So they, as an occupier, will look to the landlord for an assurance that the services that the landlord is providing in the building will ensure there's no power outages. Who takes responsibility for that? They're slightly happier to take a bit more of a risk around reinstatement at the end of at the end of the lease there's one point actually that i wanted to just pick up on here where particularly in a dry lab context where occupiers are i'm going to say logging in but that's a slightly clumsy clumsy phrase but where they're integrating their own data systems into a landlord's wider building management system that in itself creates something called the cyber bridge so hackers are going to be pretty keen on getting exposed to and getting on a cyber bridge that allows it to access the information of a lot of these tenants in these buildings. So the reason that I mention that is that that's quite a niche and unique requirement for a lot of life science occupiers. They're going to want to know that a landlord's systems are robust to withstand data attacks, cyber attacks. And when you've got occupiers who are bridging into a landlord's building management system, it creates that bridge for for hackers to to punch into. But that comes down to a liability issue that additionally you have to face there, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and who takes responsibility for it? And the market is a bit out on that at the minute. Many landlords, for obvious reasons, will not want to take responsibility or liability for service outages and resulting data loss because they will say that there's no intrinsic value to the data. So what's your loss? But it just underscores how important the data is and how important the system is that is in place into which this life science occupier is plugging so that that data outage is not lost. And actually, we would always, I would always advise clients, advise landlord owner clients that if they are faced with a tenant who is looking for like an indemnity or some sort of coverage for data loss to resist it, because actually a lot of these life science occupiers that are reliant on data will have extremely sophisticated backup systems in place anyway. It's like the cloud, right? That's what Apple used. So that if there is a data breach, if there is a power outage, then there is a constant system of backup that's going in place. So actually, uh, whilst it's a bit of a hot topic at the minute in terms of the importance and regularity and provision of services, landlords and owners should not be accepting any responsibility if that data is inadvertently lost. Or if they pick up a conversation in that direction, they have to emphasize that they're looking for tenants who are able to provide these sophisticated backup systems to avoid any kind of situations that then comes down to discussions of who is liable. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And we, we, we sort of touched there on the provision of power uh, and services, which are, I guess, sort of soft electronic topics really but there's a, there's a slightly harder security topic as well and that's the physical security around the building so quite a lot of the time life science occupiers and i guess now this is kind of more in the wet lab space are pushing the boundaries sometimes of what the general population would consider to be morally okay so i'm thinking like animal testing i'm thinking cryogenic development i'm thinking gene development uh cloning that sort of stuff so that presents a security risk for the landlord you could for example be in a world where you get a bunch of protesters turning up at the landlord's building saying hey look you've you've allowed tenant x into your building they test on animals we don't like that so so there's other physical constraints and considerations that building owners need to make when they're inviting life science tenants into their space. And you just need to think a little bit carefully about how you manage that and what provisions you've got in place to deal with it. Because not only does that create a physical security risk, but that also poses a risk to the landlord's insurance because it might actually invalidate the landlord's insurance if there's protesters that turn up and cause malicious damage, right? So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a host of things that can go wrong. In addition, you have to have conversations with the other tenants who are getting disturbed in their business that is going on. So, absolutely, yeah, it's a, it's a really delicate balance. Uh, you know, how does the service charge run? We've got a life science occupier where you've got like 10 floors in a building and you've got one life science occupier at the bottom who drains a disproportionate amount of the services. And the other tenants are going to be like, well, hang on. Previously, we were paying all an equal proportion of the service charge. That can't be right. So yeah, there's a lot of building management considerations like that that will go into having a life science occupier within your space. One question which came to my mind, which takes us a little bit stacked back, but the other thing is when you working on a concept for a building, would it make sense to think about, okay, let's set up a building which is more concepted and uh, the whole renting concept is more on the long term? having more sophisticated companies moving in with long-term contracts and one setting up somewhat of a hub where we're taking, okay, we rent out for three to five years. Could that something that is attractive for an investor as well? So because you're not 
stuck in brackets, obviously, into a long-term concept? Yeah, that's right. I think investors, first of all, need to ask themselves the question, what stock have they got available? If they've got stock available, which is conducive to being repurposed to life sciences, then we've talked about how relatively easy, depending on the physical configuration of the building, in planning terms, repurposing that space to life science. But you're absolutely right. Does it necessarily make sense with the different occupier profiles that we've talked about to have lots of different life science users, maybe wet and dry in one building, or does it make sense to separate them into different spaces. And I think if your campus, I'll say, allows that, then absolutely that's right. Because actually, whilst that benefits you from a building management perspective, you may be able to sell off parts of your investment slightly easier with a more guaranteed long-term income on the leases, potentially in a dry lab building that inhabit those floors. It's making life easier for the tenants as well, because actually they're inhabiting space, which is which is like for like. They're mixing with similar people in there. They enjoy collaboration. And whilst the life sciences community are probably as a an occupier class, slightly more neurodiverse, I would say, than kind of the average maybe office or retail occupier, they are people as well. And they enjoy amenity space. They enjoy all the things that you and I will enjoy in a building, you know, whether that's retail support, food and beverage pastoral care, all those things. But they like the collaborative, almost university come academic environment where they feel as though there is a genuine pooling and sharing of ideas. So it makes sense if you've got the space to do it, you're right. And if landlords do, they should they should seriously, seriously think about doing so. Cool. Thank you. Graham, I'm trying to get together like somewhat of a top three, top five situation. And when you talk to a client and by the end of the meeting and you have just five minutes left and he gives you this like, yeah, by the way, I'm thinking about setting up a building, branching out into the life sciences space. Could you give me a quick like top five rundown of the things I have to immediately think sure. about? Okay. So the first thing is, is location. I think with every property, whether it's commercial property or whether it's residential, it's Location, location, location. Where are you setting this building up? Where are you setting this premises up? Is your surrounding environment conducive to the use that you're looking to introduce? That's a pretty broad question, but it's quite a fundamental one I think you need to start with. Once you've answered that, the second thing to look at is what is the existing building used for? So what's the existing infrastructure in that building and how robust is it, depending on what type of occupier you're wanting to introduce? The third thing is, What's your amenity space? These are occupiers. They want the same things in the life sciences world that any other occupier wants. They want close proximity to transport hubs. They want close proximity to shops, cafes, support. What's your environment looking like into which these, these tenants are going to go? The fourth thing I'd say is be clear on who you want to attract. Know your market. Know who's looking for space. We have in the UK, for example, a shortage of lab space compared to the US. And by that, I predominantly mean wet lab space. So if you're looking to set up wet lab space, who's your market? Who's coming into that space? Perfect. What I normally do in the end, I'm going to give you the stage. Okay. So the microphone is yours. If you want to send out some messages into the ether, now is your chance. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't have anything pre-prepared. I guess I would say, particularly here in the UK, from a real estate perspective, the life science market is in its infancy certainly compared to with other life science markets around the world. So there is a opportunity here 
for people to make the best of the support, the government funding that's in place, the planning framework we've talked to here in the UK to enable life science to propel itself to the next stage. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to Hogan Lovells. We have an enormous global life science practice. So not just real estate, we deal with everything across the life science trajectory. And if you're thinking of getting into this space, or if you're an occupier thinking of taking space, come and talk to us and I'm sure we can help you. I think that's the perfect ending for our conversation. <laughs> okay. Graham, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for reaching out to me and finally make this happen. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Do the huge amount of information. I'm pretty sure we have to set up another episode to continue this conversation. Happy to. Everyone, thank you very much for taking the time. We are going to hear each other around, I would say, two weeks. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. You're not missing out on any future conversations we are going to have on this podcast. So there's nothing more to say aside from I'm going to link Graham's CV obviously in the show notes and to all the additional information we can provide here. Thank you for taking the time and uh, we hit each other again when we're talking the cure. <laughs>